0: Welcome. I want to introduce myself. I'm Dr. Eugene Rhee, the current uh, chair of the AUA Public Policy Council, and with two distinguished uh, guests, but as well good friends, uh, Dr. David Penson and Dr. Christopher Gonzalez. Many of you in this call also would recognize Dr. Kathy Shanley, uh, the chief policy officer for the AUA. Um, The function of all this is to really kickstart a series of webcasts and podcasts to make it easy for you to listen to, to really garner your attention as far as understanding what we call the elusive art of advocacy uh, and how, in this case, uh, people that you know have done a lot of lifetime work in this space, how they got started, and as well, understand a little bit about Advocacy 101 so with that, you know, you, you must understand as a listener that uh, advocacy is part of the mission statement, along with research and education. Advocacy is one of the th- most important pillars for the AUA mission. And because policy imping that we do, it's critical to understand not only why advocacy matters, but also what role individuals play in the process. And so, uh, as I I've stated, I've en- I'm joined today by Dr. Gonzalez and Dr. Benson uh, and the AUA's Executive Vice President Chief Policy Public Policy Officer, Dr. Kelly Shanley, to talk about this important topic. So, uh, I'll ask our guests to further introduce themselves, uh, starting with uh Kathy, Shanley, go ahead and introduce yourself, and then Dave and then Chris.
1: Yeah. Hi, everybody. Um, Thanks for joining us today to hear a little bit more
0: about our advocacy work at the AUA. Um, I am the Executive Vice President of Policy and Advocacy, as Dr. East said. I've been with about AUA for about eight years, and I actually will be celebrating my 30th year in the association world in January. So thank you, and I'll turn it over to Dr. David Penson.
1: Thanks, Kathy. Uh, I'm David Penson. I'm uh, uh, the chair of urology at Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee. And I've been involved with the AUA now for must be, it's going on 15 years or so in various roles. Um, I started uh, uh, Well, it's a long story I started, but uh, uh, the the short version is I I was uh, the first public policy chair when public policy spun out of health policy and uh, served in that role till about five years ago or so. And then uh, uh, Chris Gonzalez took over, and I currently serve as the chair for science and quality for the AUA. Chris?
2: Chris Gonzalez. I am the chair of urology at Loyola in Maywood, Illinois, and I'm the former chair of public policy. I'm also the last vice chair of public policy when there was a vice chair. So I've been involved with this for about eight years now, and I was vice chair to Dave's chair. So got a really good chance to understand the role and learn about it. It was an honor and a privilege to, to serve for the last eight years. So uh, appreciate you having me on this call. Waiting for you, Eugene.
1: Oh,
0: I'm sorry. All right. So uh, Eugene Rhee, uh, current chair and uh, the national chief of urology for uh, the Permanente Federation, Kaiser Permanente. Um, we're all friends here. We're going to go by first names here. Obviously, we've known each other for years. What, uh, and speak of, I mean, I'll let you and you all speak to your piece here. When did that advocacy really become relevant for you? When was that inflection point that
1: you can recall as your in urology? Uh, i i think i'm the oldest here so uh so i'll go first um i don't feel like the oldest gentleman but uh in and any any young lady uh i i th- i think what i really got interested in this um was when there were when people were starting to look for uh uh value based purchasing and trying to think of different ways to sort of um pay for healthcare in the US. And and for me, as someone who does research also, and is also a clinician, but really wanted to sort of find ways to make a difference, it was clear to me that, you know, whoever controlled the purse strings um, uh, for reimbursement in healthcare controlled how we delivered healthcare. And so that was sort of the big lever to make change and improve things for patients. So. I want to say about 2004, 2005, people were talking about pay for performance, which was the sort of, you know, uh, predecessor to what is now value-based purchasing and, and, and I sort of got interested in that. And I felt a little bit at the time, like I was uh chicken little at the AUA saying, this is going to happen. This is going to happen. Guys and gals, we got to be on top of this. And it just kind of, uh, you know, cascaded from there. It did happen. So I, I seemed like I was pretty smart. I was just really lucky. Um, and as it As I got more involved, it became really clear to me that while I really like doing research and I love seeing patients, that if you really wanted to make a difference both for patients and also for urology and for the specialty, for the people who deliver urologic care, Advocacy was really probably the best and, and, and certainly one of the most powerful avenues to do so because you could really sort of influence the care of literally hundreds of thousands of people simply by a few lines of regulation or or uh, legislation. And so, so that really was what drove me into this, Gene.
2: Chris? Yeah, I remember very distinctly. I was uh, in 2000. I was just starting as an attending at Northwestern. And I was walking down the hallway And Dr. Jack Greyhack was still on staff. And I remember him yelling down the hallway saying, hey, Gonzalez, I got to talk to you. So I went down and talked to him. He said, the north central section is looking for a health policy person, and I think you should consider that. And whenever he said anything, you just did it. And said, yep, that sounds like a great idea, Dr. Greyhack. But he was very insightful. I mean, I think in those days, 20 years ago now, he was just talking a little bit about, he's like, you know, there's all these things that get between the doctor and the patient relationship. There's all these different types of things, you know, lawyers, pharma, all this type of stuff. And he goes, why don't you try and make an impact and get involved in this stuff? It might be something good because I can see that as being a big thing. And he was 100% correct as he normally always was. So I think that was kind of a nice little prime mover because that really was not on my radar whatsoever. Once I got involved, I certainly met a lot of people, uh, you know, obviously we'll talk a little bit more about how to get more involved, but through the Gallagher scholarship and the first Jack, Bill G's and Ron Kaufman's who really had a good way of describing, you know, where's the need and what, what, why are we here? Why are we doing these things? And I think my biggest thing is always, I, I just remember always seeing a chart or a graph where you've got two boxes, which are patient and doctor and there's all, and that's the way it was a hundred years ago, but now you got all these things that are interrupting that. It's like a huge flow chart now, everything in between the patient and the doctor. So our goal is to try and shrink that down, the relationship between the patient and the doctor and help us, rid of those obstacles that make it so difficult for us to practice and I think that's at least what Dr. Greyhack had mentioned and that's something obviously that I've taken from that so
0: thanks Chris um you know for me I think uh what got me started uh is more about uh leadership and understanding where who I was um I think it goes for me earlier as the high school and uh, college, just being involved in, in student government, and being advocates as students even back way early. Um, I'm curious to know if you both had, whether it was sports or academics or whatnot, uh, if you saw you were sort of one of those people that liked to eat as far as that's concerned. I, I think that when, as I evolved into the becoming a physician and a urologist, um, I started Uh, really understanding a lot more about uh, trying to make a difference beyond, uh, you know, I get a lot of satisfaction towards the clinical realm, but uh, sort of to Dave and Chris's point, you both are, you recognize that you, you, you are, you have an ability to sort of craft and mold and shape something even bigger uh, to help our specialty as far as that's concerned. And frankly, urology, I I think everyone always gets asked, why did you choose urology? You know, it's a lot about people and the people have been really just astoundingly creative uh, leaders in their own right, um, wonderful people in 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 this specialty, and I, I love it so much that I think it got me motivated to be involved in a bigger realm in in a position. I'm very humbled, deeply humbled by following in you guys' footsteps. Were you guys leaders in high school, college, that sort of thing? What look reflecting back in what you were like? <laughs> Dave is like no. nope, nope,
1: nope, <laughs> nope. nope. <laughs> nope. Um, Late bloomer. <laughs> You know, I I don't know. I, 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 I don't, I, I'm, I don't feel upset and I'm not, it's not false modesty. I don't feel like I'm a natural leader. On the other hand, I am a firstborn child. And so that may have something to do with it. But I think that, you know, um, when you get behind something that's important to you and it's, and it matters to other people, I think that naturally sort of puts you into some sort of driver's seat for what it's worth. Um, but, uh, but no, I was never the captain of, of any, any, any football team, anything like that. Um, you know, uh, and I, and it's not, I, I just feel like, like I said, I, you know, you, you want to make a difference. You know, that's what I was always told when I was a kid. Um, you know, my father would say, know, whatever you do, just, you know, leave the world a better place. And I, you know. I think a lot of us want to do that. I think when you're doing it right and other people uh, sort of it resonates with other people, they naturally want to work with you. And if you end up being the leader, great. But I think people just want to do the right thing, you know, and they're, they're drawn to people who feel that way.
2: Chris. Yeah, no, I think I agree with what David's saying. I think knowledge is power. And I think that if you really understand the problems, the issues and where the soft points are and really where where the need is, I think that really goes a long way. And I think, it is very uh, attractive when you see somebody who's very engaged and they're engaged for all the right reasons. It's easy to recruit people in those, in those fashion. So we can do the high school things on the sports teams and all the, that's one thing. But I think really when you see somebody behind a cause and somebody who's really behind something that is worth fixing or worth uh, revising, I think it's really easy to jump on board with people in those situations. Right.
0: Right. Um, I know that all three of us um, were, you mentioned, Chris, you know, we're all uh, Gallagher scholars uh, with AUA and that, that program personally was a big uh, changing point for me. Uh, tell us about your Gallagher experience, um, how that program specifically shaped you as an advocate. Um,
2: Well, yeah, for me, the Gallagher uh, was extremely important. So, you know, I was at the sectional level where I did a lot of things. I thought that was outstanding, a lot of good mentorship. And here's where, you know, here's why we're doing these things. And really at that point, you're kind of figuring out what, you know, what do you want to do or what, how do you want to contribute to the organization? So the Gallagher Scholar, um, as I think I was the third or the fourth, I can't remember which one, but the bottom line is I saw the people that went in front of me who really enjoyed it. I admired the people that went in front of me. I thought they did a great job, and they said they had positive experiences, so I had to experience it for myself. And you know, when I did, I really felt um, it, was, it was very well organized. It was exposing me to all the different areas that we need to be exposed to. So you talk about reimbursement, you talk about coding, you talk about uh, going to the Jack, your first Jack, and seeing what the political process is all about. I really left a really good taste in my mouth and really said I want to continue to do this. I think that's great. And I think the other issue is, is right after the Gallagher, is the organization trying to keep you involved. I mean, I think the um, the main point is once people do these things is to keep them involved and keep the momentum going forward. And I really kind of saw where some of the soft points were, and I felt, you know, everybody wants to try and make a difference or make an impact, and I felt I could make some kind of an impact or a contribution in that regard. So again, very strong mentorship surrounding the, the Gallagher within the Gallagher, former Gallagher scholars. Uh, and then also the people that we, I got to meet in the coding and reimbursement and the RUC and everything else. So, so again, very positive experience. And I, I think, uh, it, it's continued in that way. We've done a pretty good job of continuing that, encouraging people to continue in that process. So,
1: yeah. So I, I I'd echo that. Um, Uh, I I had both the blessing and the curse of being the the first person to go through that program. And so it it was sort of a tabula rasa. And the way I approached it was there were things I thought I knew something about. Um, Not a lot, but there were a few. And there were things I knew nothing about. And I, for example, I really didn't have a good idea about coding and reimbursement. I didn't really understand um, how RVUs work. Um, and how that played into, uh, and uh, how that played into reimbursement, and how that you know, and how Medicare used it, and so I kind of really approached it, uh, which I think is different than the way it's done now. I think it's a more, it's a broader um, experience now, which is better. Um, but uh, I really used it to learn about things. I, I, I. I, I didn't know I, I didn't know anything about and for the most part uh, the lessons were really positive and I mean that in in, in a good way not in a bad way like I I, I I they you go to this course at Brandeis um which I think they still do where which is about advocacy which was great and I met you know physicians from other specialties and policy experts um and then I learned you know I said most of the lessons are positive I learned a lot from negative lessons like Chris has heard me joke about this before. I never want to go back to the rock again. I, I found that to be a, a really—it was not congruent with who and what I am. So that was a really important lesson because I realized how it worked, how important it was, and how I wasn't cut out to do it. You know, and that's probably a really important lesson. So, but but the nicest thing about the Gallagher program, I think, for the AUA, there's an expression which a skill from the Robert Wood Johnson foundation from some of their programs, which is building human capital. If you look at the people who've come out of that program, um, we've, you know, we've really developed a cadre of urologists young and some of us are now middle-aged who understand advocacy and understand policy and are able to work for the specialty and sort of influence things that help our patients and help our colleagues. Which, which I think is great. I mean, it's just a terrific program.
0: Yeah, I mean, for beautifully said both. Yeah, I for and I. will echo what you all said. I things I'll I'll add though is that the Gallagher was the stepping off point. I think for a whole host of opportunities, the AUA really uh, understood that this kind of grew. The whole group fellowship, a legislative, a legislative uh, uh, opportunity for someone. The AUA leadership classes um, are also a stable a racehorse, as I always say, that sort of advocacy is one thing that uh, I think so many le- people in the AUA leadership classes have seen and been involved in, and uh, in the, even the section leaders, uh, le- leadership themselves have led into our advocacy with AUA work. Uh, and finally, the, the staffers at the AUA. The, well, the thing I think with the Gallagher was, I didn't realize what a machine advocacy was until I, I was exposed to the Gallagher and the extent of networking within uh, Baltimore and the AUA and D.C. and the rest of the country. And I think that, uh, you know, the physician volunteers is one thing, but seasoned staffers and uh, as well as um, the network that was grown, relationships that were grown, uh, I think you, you can't replace sort of that commitment we all had as Gallagher scholars. Um, and I appreciate the AUA, continuing that legacy moving forward. Um, in your opinion, moving forward, in your opinion, what role does advocacy play in the practice urology? And I want to be specific pre-COVID and post-COVID or otherwise. What what role do you think does advocacy play? Let's go with Dave and then go with Chris.
1: Yeah, yeah, I mean, advocacy is critical. Um, and I don't think people appreciate it. You know, you made a comment about the Gallagher Scholar, and you mentioned some of the other programs. And I think, you know, one of the things that I, I think the AUA has been good about in exposing folks in the young leadership program, as an example, and some of the other sort of uh, the, the resident sections about about where advocacy matters for us. In the end, as as Chris alluded to, there are it's not just the doctor and the patient. There are all these other parties that bounce around in that relationship and affect our ability to deliver care and uh, for patients to get care. And the only way for us to really leverage that is through uh, avenues of advocacy. And it's not um, your classic, I'm just going to go visit my senator, I'm going to visit my congressman. It's advocating with government administrators. It's working with Research agencies like the NIH. It's um, working at a state level, which the AUA does more and more. Um, really trying to get in there um, and talk to uh, whether it's policymakers, whether it's legislature legislators, so they understand what we do because they don't understand what we do, and they often don't understand urologic disease. So if we don't go there and tell them, look, you know, this is why you know, kidney stones are so you know, awful for people who have them and how it's hard for us to deliver care um, or whether it's cancer or pediatric urology, you know, they don't understand that they have this large spectrum of problems they deal with. And maybe they have one, you know, legislative aid and that person is responsible for the whole gamut of health care and public health. Um, And when you go and you think about the regulatory bodies on top of it, you know, you think, oh, Medicare is an example. Uh, Oh, they get health care. They're delivering health care for every American over age 65. They don't really, and it's not their fault, nor should they be expected to understand the nuances of, you know, urologic care for the elderly in this country. And So that's our job to explain it to them and to point out to them ways that we can do it better with their help, things that are in our way, and also for us to respond to their needs because they have real needs. So we don't learn it any other way. So to me, I think that's really the essence of why advocacy is so critical. Because if we don't go out there and explain it to these folks, they're not going to know it, right? And they're not going to be able to help us do the right thing for our patients.
0: Post, uh, in COVID times, post-COVID, Dave? Oh, yeah. you know?
1: <laughs> so, so, so first I have to be able to leave Nashville to answer that question, Dr. Reed. <laughs> um, so I, 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 I'd like to hope that You know, one day in the future, we'll get back to some sort of normal, maybe not the same. But I think also when you look at things now, as we go out there, look at the telehealth experience in the post-COVID era. I think that's a great example. And urology has been really good about leading, you know, from the front with telehealth and advocating both at a national level and a state level. Um, and, you know, they need to hear from providers who understand that, um, you know, clinicians who, who do that every day. Um, but I hope that the relationships don't change that much post-COVID. Uh, if anything, I hope they lean on us a little more to understand how the virus has changed the way we're delivering urologic care and general health care to our patients, because it sort of has, right? Um, but it's hard for me to guess. If, if you have a better guess, let me know, because I just have no idea. <laughs>
2: Chris? Yeah, I think I agree with everything Dave is saying. And I think advocacy really as doctors. We're educators. That's what we are as doctors. And I think that getting the message out to Dave's point is extremely, extremely important of what we do, who we impact and how many people we actually impact and the importance of what we do. I know every group up there on the Hill is saying those things and rightfully so, but I think we have a very strong message and it's up to us to get it out there. And it's up to us to recruit other people to get it out there as well too. I think advocacy means a lot other things to me it means patience so we're not going to get a lot of victories there's going to be a lot of negativity associated with it there's going to be a lot of losses that we get and frustration but we got to keep pushing forward um i also think advocacy is a slugfest right so it's going to be how many resources do you have versus your opponents or the people who are advocating for things opposite of what you're trying to advocate for and you know how do we communicate with them and how do we communicate effectively with lawmakers with people up on the hill with agency folks, you know, as far as what we're trying to get across and the importance of what we're trying to get across. And I think those are all extremely important. So we talk about, well, you're going up there on the hill and nothing's happening and it's the same old Washington, DC and everything. But that's that's not necessarily true. I think we've had some victories in the past and SGR repeal we were a part of, IPAB repeal, the Euro trauma bill being passed. So there are some real victories and We're getting more and more victories now with some of the things we're doing with research advocacy as far as connecting the dots between NIH and NIDDK and getting our presence up there known. So I think the one thing I really enjoy and and, and approve of with the AUA is that we do surveys of our members all the time, asking them what's important to you for advocacy. So we are not just in the hip up here. We're basically responding to what our members think is most important. And that's what we're trying to bring to lawmakers right now. So we're advocating for our membership. So what do we have? Three, four hundred docs that actually volunteer in some way, shape, or form. We want to keep recruiting those folks, and when we go to the summit and these kind of things, and want to get involved, I think that's fantastic. So, advocacy means a lot of things, but it means patience, not getting too down, and then just being pers- persevering through a lot of uh, tough times.
0: Thanks, Chris. Uh, you know. Public policy, by definition, is uh, principles that are often unwritten um, on which social laws are based. That's the definition of public policy. It's elusive. Um, that's the actually the title of this podcast. And I think what we're getting at is advocacy. It means different things for each the three chairs here that you're hearing about. Um, and I think that for for in my perspective, um, advocacy is trying to you know. Uh, represent urology and specifically urology in the different practices that are that are delivering the care whether it's as you all in the academics whether it's in independent practices whether it's an employed group managed care group you name it we're still all urologists under one roof and the point is that the advocacy side is is to really delve into the what's important to uh, urologists and their patients to make sure that, as you all have stated, you know, is to make them under, help people understand who are lawmakers, policymakers. They don't necessarily have to be congressmen, as we all alluded to. They could be regulatory uh, in nature, and uh, they could be the general public. And the point is, is that you know, these are things that are, that we, as as human beings, you know, we 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 have social laws. Um, and healthcare in terms of equity and how it's shared across our country. I think healthcare equity is something that no one is disagreeing needs to, to, we need to have that mission forward, uh, sort of sense of urgency, particularly after the COVID. I think COVID, what is bringing out is some of the great success stories of, of what our strengths of our healthcare system is, but as well as you can imagine, we've seen some complete weaknesses and heightened and amplified because of the fragmentation of our healthcare. So I think that, you know, for us as leaders in this space and the advocacy work, we compel folks to work together to create equity mission uh, in the future. Um, That's sort of how I have viewed it too in the practice of urology and advocacy. the AUA um, has built, we've, it's obvious, we've, we've had a strong policy framework over the years. Um, both of you, tell us a little bit about the framework, what you believe to be the responsibilities for, let's be specific of these areas. Uh, let's talk about legislative and uh, legislative and political affairs. Can you tell us a little bit about that framework that you, you're understanding now uh, in your four years or five years of doing this job? What, what, what that means uh, for you and the responsibilities and framework of legislative and political affairs. Chris, let's go with you and then Dave.
2: Yeah, I think legislative affairs, extremely important, obviously, as they all are. But I think this is the group that does the best. It has the best opportunity to take what the membership feels is important and shape that into specific congressional acts and really not to try and uh, prioritize them, but bring them all, whether it's going to be eight different legislative acts or 10 different legislative acts, But the bottom line is that we get the right wording to these things, so we can put the resources that the AUA has behind it, we can incorporate this into the summit, we can incorporate this in obviously in many of our efforts with agencies as well. But I think that's going to be the biggest thing is just trying to incorporate what our members need, responding to our members, let them know, hey, we heard you, here's what we're going to do, and here's going to be our legislative ask and refreshing that list every year. I think that's extremely, extremely important. So in my mind, that's I think the most important role of that particular committee.
1: Yeah, Dave? Yeah, I, I mean, that's well put, Chris. I, I'd add a little bit, or maybe take a different uh, tact, in that, you know, legislative affairs specifically is one angle. Um, and it's probably the highest profile angle because, you know, you have laws and, you know, everyone sees when you get the repeal of, uh, of SGR, as an example, through, through a bill or, or uh, you know, we start pushing a bill for transparency for USPSTF, which, by the way, never got officially passed, but we got what we wanted, right? Um, so legislative affairs, I think, is this sort of everyone gets fo- fixated on it, but it's it's like turning a battleship; it takes forever. Um, but it's sort of, in many regards, the flagship of of public policy. In many regards, because it's it's the most high profile, uh, I think, of of the uh, of the committees. But what's interesting about it, where I'm going with this is that it's challenging because, as as Chris alluded to, you know, and you, uh, Eugene, you mentioned you know we have different practices and different people within the urology tent. You know, you have. Employed physicians, academic, uh, employed by academic institutions, hospitals. You have large group practices. You have small practices. You have trainees. You have, you know, advanced practice providers. And so everyone wants to get, go to the legislative affairs and get their piece of legislation pushed forward. Um, and so, as Chris alluded to, we, we have to think of the entire specialty. Um, but I think it's sort of almost like, an iceberg. We're seeing the tip of it, but what's going on below the ocean is just as important, if not more important. When I know we'll talk about like regulatory affairs and coding reimbursement, which are not nearly as sexy, not as high profile, yet maybe just as influential. But I think when you ask about what's the framework there, that's sort of the sort of big ticket items, which I think are are at the front and in the spotlights, but maybe not always the most important items. You know?
0: Yeah. Well, so in the interest of time, I'm going to go. There's, I have four more that I want to kind of go through because it's important uh, in terms of what the public policy council does. Uh, state advocacy. Let's go with state advocacy, Dave. What do you think? Uh, state advocacy. Strong. Uh, tell us about your framework in your mind. Uh,
1: so, state advocacy is uh, a really important and growing part of the AUA's portfolio. I mean, there's a long history which predates. You know uh, all of us um, and uh, but, but the reality of it is is that all politics are local right and and policy and politics aren 't the same thing, but policy is local too so it 's you know we like to think this big federal politics legislation, but most of the decisions we 're making and most of of, uh, of the most important decisions are at the state level. So, I, you know, AUA has doubled down in that area and has really uh, grown that uh, part of our portfolio because it's so important. What happens in California is so different than what happens in Illinois and so different than what happens in Tennessee. And so it's not a one-size-fits-all. So I, I really like what's happened there. And, and that uh, you know, we have Kathy, I think, in no small part to thank for that. Uh, she won't actually yell out and say anything, but you know, Kathy's done a lot of the work there and has really uh, driven that. And it's critical, and it's going to be more and more important as we go forward. And there are all sorts of examples that that you can give, uh, Eugene. You know, because California has been one of the most important uh, uh, sort of arenas where that's that's pulled out. Where you know, we have had to come in as a national group uh, to work with this uh, on the state level to help our 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 patients and our uh, clinicians. All right,
2: Chris. Yeah, I'd say probably in the last 18 months, it's been one of the most gratifying things is to work with the state advocacy committee and, and the really great things that they're doing. So I talked a little bit earlier about that. How do we stop all those forces from getting in between the patient and the doctor? And if you think about some of the things that were stopped at the state level, such as the intersex, you know, I mean, the, the whole situation of trying to ban surgery for intersex and uh, children with uh, uh differences in, in development. I mean, I, I would say that um, that was a big, big deal, because that was coming up state by state, and we were actually able to beat that down and keep it down for now. But again, constant surveillance, because at the end of the day, it could it's going to pop up again. I think we things were sidetracked a little bit with the pandemic, but I think it's, it's not the last we're going to hear of it. I also think other harmful things, such as trying to uh, inhibit PSA screening is another thing that we, in some states that we've actually been on the ground. We've been able to engage with a lot of really great folks uh, in, at the state level, and I, I think we've been able to get them involved as well, too, going forward. So I think it's been very gratifying to see, as Dave was saying, that grassroots level of, of where things basically start. And, and the thing is, is once something gets passed in five, six, seven states, then all of a sudden, from a national perspective, hey, what's going on in those states? Cat's out of the bag. And we got a bigger problem on our hands. This way, we've been able to deal with it individually and knock down some of these threats immediately and, and have the, the playbook. We go from one state, from California, then we go to Iowa, then we go to Texas. We know what to do to, to, uh, to uh, uh, make sure that our, our interests are protected and that our relationship with our patients and our ability to have conversations with our patients and do what that relationship between the doctor and the patient is not inhibited in any way, shape, or form. So... Yeah, and what's gratifying right now
0: um, that I'm seeing the fruits of the labor of, of early work is telehealth in the state advocacy work, uh, state by state. Same thing with this COVID thing. The telehealth has really just moved forward in a leaps and bounds, where um, each of the states are communicating, uh, figuring out, hey, you know, how do we do? You know, what's our? You know, how do we negotiate through licensure or reimbursement, payers, that sort of thing, um, as far as that's concerned. Research advocacy, Chris, When talk about research advocacy, um, another uh, pillar for us in our work at uh, the AUA Public Policy Council.
2: Yeah, again, another one that's really, we're going to watch this take off in the next year or two, so we've got very motivated people on that particular committee. The way I look at it and what we've been able to do is just connect a lot of dots that need to be connected. So I thought one of the interesting examples would be, and, and we're working with district policy, our lobbying group, who's been fantastic, and they've got connections as well. But if you think about it, we were asking about how do we get cancer survivorship funded? And in the past, what had happened is, well, the NIH would say, well, that's not our realm. And the NIDDK would say, that's not our realm. So what we were able to do is identify that miscommunication, able to connect the dots So now we're going to talk to lawmakers about, hey, look, I mean, there is something real with cancer survivorship, and that affects all of us, uh, you know, from that perspective. So I think that's one good example. I think another thing is our representation. I think we were probably underrepresented, and with the NIDDK, we didn't have anybody in the strategic planning work group. And, you know, we, we found out about that, went through the diplomatic process, found out who the players were. And actually now I think we've got somebody, at least one person on the strategic planning work group for the NIDDK, which just gives us representation because we got a lot of good people with a lot of good ideas uh, in the house of urology. And we want to have those people front and center. We're doing some really good research work. So I think research is just kind of finding out, letting them know what we do, we may not be able to get more of the pie, but maybe just a bigger, increase the size of the pie, but maybe just increase the slice of the pie for urology and all the things that we do. So, Great. Dave.
1: I don't have much to add to that. I mean, I think Chris hit the nail right on the head. You know, no. um, it's a bit of a, a circular firing squad, right? Um, uh, there's there's X amount of uh, research dollars. And if, if, you know, if rheumatology gets it, then nephrology doesn't, right? And um, so you got to be the squeaky wheel uh, if you want the grease. And that's really what research advocacy becomes. But the point that Chris made, which is really, you know, critical is, you know, there's a lot of sort of when you to the the federal funding agencies there's a lot of oh we don't do that so and so does that And you go to so and so and oh we don't do that so and so does that and so a big chunk of that is exactly what chris mentioned is pointing out to people no one's doing it guys you guys are all thinking someone else is doing it and it needs to be done so that's really a key part of our mission and uh, and and i i think uh, that's really built up uh Uh, since I was the public, it came after me is what I'm saying. So that's credit to to you guys. And I I really think it's, um, it's really important. You know, it's the only way we're going to be able to, to really improve the care for patients and get new therapeutics and, and make people better is to, you know, push research in that area. And that's how you do it.
0: So, um, let's move on to, uh, payment policy coding reimbursement, Dave, and by the way, uh, Norm Smith and Bill G will have their moment. Not uh, as sexy. I think they're going to actually have, uh, well, they have their
1: own interpretation of this. Uh, money is definitely uh, uh, sexy for people. There's no, no two ways about it, you know. Um, but the funny thing is no one realizes that that's where, you know, people don't realize that the coding reimbursing piece, which, piece, which is, you know, not, not is not, sexy for a lot of people is where the where the dollars flow and then they get interested so it's it's frankly it's 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 one of the oldest committees under public policy maybe the oldest at this point and in many regards people don't understand it but it's the most important because it is how you get paid and in the end you know no margin no mission right so um, so that's really been an important part of the effort there and and it's representing us at the RUC. and I should say that the RUC, uh is really a critical part uh, uh, a critical body that urology has to be represented in. And you mentioned Bill G, you know, he was sort of our champion there forever and ever. And urology owes him a debt. And, and this is where I said before, where it's not sexy because a lot of people don't realize how important he was for our specialty to ensure that we were adequately reimbursed for the good care we deliver. Um, that group is just so, um, so integral to our success. And it is a bit, uh, a sort of an arcane book of knowledge. Not everyone gets it, and not everyone likes it. I probably am the book can but the reality of it is, is that um, you know it's so critical to our mission, um, and uh, and it really uh, and Chris can back me up in this. I know Eugene you can as well. I mean, it really as the public policy chair, it really is such a big part of your focus, and yet no one really you know, people don't appreciate it because it really is sort of back office sort of stuff, but it's
2: critical back office sort of stuff, right? You know? Yeah. Chris? Yeah, I, I can't overemphasize, you know, the amount of respect and um, thanks that I give not only to AUA staff, who does an amazing job in this area, but to the Rock and to the CRC. I mean, I think Jonathan Rubenstein, Ron Kaufman are just, they're MVPs. they most valuable players in this whole thing. And Bill G and Norm Smith, obviously. I think if the membership really, and if you ask most members who are not involved in public policy, they're going to say, yeah, well, don't they go up there and argue for money? And, but I think if they really understood the millions and millions of dollars that these individuals have saved us just because of their knowledge and because of the respect that they have amongst their peers, when they go up there in a very, uh, uh, peer reviewed situation, I, I think they would really open their eyes as to the importance of what they do. And I think that, um, can't overemphasize just how important that is. And, and, you know, we say that all the time with the no margin, no mission, that's exactly right. But, you know, if we're, if we're losing reimbursement for the important things that we offer to patients, then that's a big, huge problem. And I think they're very, we talk about them a lot, but I think we can always, we can talk about them more just about the importance of what they do. So I think it's a crucial, critical thing. And, and again, staff, the RUC, the CRC, just extremely important in our mission. And and I think that they're well supported up there and, 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 Obviously, uh, I've got nothing but great things to say about him,
0: Chris. Um, let's talk uh, science and quality. Finally, let's uh, have you comment on that. And then Dave, um, obviously, is the chair on science and quality. This is your baby, but Chris, why don't you um, talk about
2: that? Yeah, I think science and quality. Um, I was vice chair on uh, well, I was vice chair on the patient quips, the KIPS committee. That's what it was actually, but but uh, so I was on that for a very very short period of time. But I think science and quality, we, I think one of the first things I'd mentioned was knowledge is power. And I think what, what happens is, is that we are, for the advocacy perspective, we are coming to the Hill, we're coming to lawmakers, we're coming to agencies with facts. And we're coming with a lot of really good facts. And I think the things that have been really hard work of putting these facts together, and I think Dave's been an integral part of that over the last several years, not just in his recent role. And I think that's like extremely, extremely important, um, is that many times people can have a message, but if you got a message with science behind it, I think that's extremely important. I think what we're trying to do as an organization as far as building quality metrics, I think, is obviously that's a slugfest as well, too, because at first we were designing measures, went through all this work and money, and they weren't really recognized. But I think now a lot of the quality measures, a lot of the quality things that we were doing actually right now are going to be recognized. They're recognized on on a daily basis with public policy when we do go to the Hill and talk to lawmakers about these things with the guidelines, incredibly powerful, the educational efforts that we're doing for AUA with these things. So, again, um, we're saying everything's important because it is, is the bottom line. But uh, I'll let Dave take it from there. Yeah, so
1: um, so I guess I have the old guy on this call, which really kind of bums me out. Um, I certainly have the least amount of hair on this call, which is really sad. Um, but in any event, you know, I, I I go back to a time when there was – Health policy and everything was under one umbrella, um, and you just look at how this has become such a focus for our organization and how critical it is. And that's why you have public policy and science and quality and science and quality, which uh, I, I'm chairing now, is is on the one hand independent, on the other hand, you know, interwoven with public policy. Um, and in science and quality, you have the guidelines uh, 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 committee. So all of the great AUA guidelines are developing science, human patient safety. Which Chris alluded to, which does quality metrics and quality improvement, and again, it's very science driven. I hope, uh, and then finally, our data committee, which is um, oversees not just the AUA census, but importantly, is the home of the Aqua Quality Registry. So we're collecting data on the quality of care, uh, quality of urologic care in the United States. And why does any of that matter, right? How does that play into public policy and advocacy? It's all related. I, I like to think that uh, the science and quality side generates the data that Chris alluded to. You can't go and make an argument for change without good, hard data to support what you're asking for. So, I, in my regards, I think a science and quality is a sort of data generation uh, organization and the public policy side is this implementation and change making organization. And they have to go hand in hand. Um, It's, it's been really fun to be involved in both. Um, uh, And I think that working together, that's how we do advocacy at the AUA. We don't just walk in there and say, Oh, this is our opinion. We think this is important. We're able to walk in and say, We have data to show this. As we walk in with patients and say, "These are our patients," they'll back us up on this. We have policy experts. We're able to push legislation. And by the way, there's an other part of this as well, which is uh, the AUA's Office of Education, which goes back and tries to inform our rank and file members about the science. So we're practicing in a way that's consistent for what we're asking for. I mean, it's 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 a it's a somewhat well-oiled machine, you know, because it's gotten so big. But it's a wonderful machine because I do think it's effective, which is really cool, which is credit to, you know, the folks on this call, you guys who have, are, have run public policy, the staff, um, all you know, to trainees, to rank and file members. You know, we we get a lot done as a group, and and so that's to me where I see science and quality and public policy coming together. You know. So
0: this is really important. Uh, it reminds me, it really was one of the milestones I'll never forget. Uh, Dave, when you were, it was in AUA, and I think it was in San Diego, when the USPSTF was a, had gone down to a grade D, do not recommend. <laughs> you were the chair of public policy. The, it was extraordinary, uh, the path and journey you took, our group through. But kind of take us through, is it important important thing for our listeners, this is sort of a me- amalgamation of uh, science and quality, right, with advocacy work to, to you know, in a, a long, in a long strategy to really get to some reform in USPSTF in regards to our PSA screening, which went to, you know, which got upgraded. What, what, it? can you take us briefly yeah. through? Yeah, yeah as it's as a great example, story.
1: It's a great story. And it is actually, you're right, Eugene, it's the perfect example of how this works. And it is a victory. um, And I'm proud of my small part in it too. Um, But I think a lot of people played a big role in it. When you go back to 2012, you know, the United States Preventive Services Task Force looked at prostate cancer screening and gave it a a grade D. AUA had put out a guideline in 2009, which was a best practice panel, was not evidence-based. And that hurt us. Because We were really going and trying to advocate for screening based primarily on expert opinion, and people viewed us as biased. Um, And then what you saw was, um, and there was learning on the part of the AUA. We made some missteps when it first came out. We maybe didn't message as well as we could have, frankly. Um, But what I think we learned at the time was, you know, we needed to have the long view. That was the first thing. Um, It wasn't enough just to yell and scream and Bury our, you know, take our ball and go home. We had to think about how can we make change, and we pushed a lot of different levers. First thing was we pushed the legislative lever, and we started to work with legislators um, on both sides of the aisle. That's an important part to create a piece of legislation to say, you know, it's not that the prostate cancer screening decision was necessarily wrong. It's just it wasn't inclusive of all the stakeholders. And let's push USPSDF and its funding agency, ARC, to be more inclusive and to include all the stakeholders. And that put some pressure to say, hey, listen, this is important. And then we came in with guidelines and we redid our guideline. We created an evidence-based guideline that was – you know a little bit more balanced and pulled out the um, and pulled out the new data that had come out and really took a different approach to PSA screening and it was a change from our two thousand and nine decision um, We worked uh, and uh, pushed people i think from a a data and quality science and quality side to say active surveillance is something we want to do. We need to change the equation here, and that worked also with the Office of Education. Um, and then at the state level, when people started saying, we're not going to cover PSA testing, state advocacy came in and got legislation passed at the state level to say, we, we're, you're going to cover this discussion, and you're going to cover this if patients w- want this done. So you start to see all this, these different pieces being pushed. And then behind the scenes, again, uh, with research advocacy and regulatory advocacy, AUA started talking to the United States Preventive Services Task Force uh, on the old DL, as they say. And, you know, you guys need to take another look at this. Yeah, we're going to take another look at this. Well, let's talk a little bit about why we think you need to look at this and these different, uh, the things you maybe want to focus on. And when you take that coupled with, frankly, legislative pressure, coupled with, you know, new data coming out showing changes in diagnoses, you ultimately have what is effectively a public policy perfect storm Mm -hmm. where we were able to make a change in a very collaborative, somewhat friendly way, where USPS, USPSTF, I think, moved from a D to a C and urology and medical oncology recognized that the data were never going to support, you know, mass population screening, but There was enough data to support individual discussions, and we've ended up, I think, in a really good place. It's a huge, huge uh, victory, and it's a really great example of what happens when the machine works well. And there are other things going on now that I think are are similar, um, you know, around quality. I think telehealth is a good example of that too, where you see us pushing different levers in different parts of the AUA machine to help uh, our providers, to help our patients, and to make urologic care better, you know?
0: Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Yeah. Uh, we're running out of time, but before I go and say goodbye to my friends here, um, what, what's your advice uh, to someone who's new to advocacy, uh, wants to get involved on knowing what you all stalwarts experience, institutional knowledge? Tell Tell the listener. What, what, how do you get started? What, if you're just inkling of interest, what, what's your advice to these people that you, they ask you? Uh, Chris, why don't you go with you and then Dave, and then we'll close.
2: Yeah, so I think there's a lot of that right now. And I would say I don't want people to feel shy to reach out to us. Yes. Reach out to Dave, reach out to me, reach out to you, reach out to the leaders in the field in these areas. And, and reach out and say, what, what can I do to get involved? I hear that all the time. And there's a lot of things you can do to get involved. We have the summit come to the summit, Um, AUA PAC, you can go to that website and find out how to get involved in that because that represents everything for all urologists. And I think uh, there's something in that for everybody as far as what we're trying to get accomplished. Um, but I think the biggest thing is the sectional level too, is is the state level and the sectional level are extremely important. There's always opportunities. They're always looking for representatives on the committees at the state urology level, and also within the sectional level. So again, uh, talk to your program directors, talk to your chairs, uh, uh, and, or talk to us, you know, the, 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 the email call, anything you want to do. So. Yeah. I, I, I,
1: obviously, you know, everything Chris said is spot on. Um, I'll just, Add uh, to the last part of what you said, Chris. I think getting involved locally is is critical. Um, uh, the AUA is there to help people, and uh, but but it's I think it's daunting, particularly for younger folks who don't know the organization. Um, and certainly, you know, you pick up the phone, you call people, you go to these meetings, and you'll find it's a welcoming place. And you know, we need all the help we can get. I, I don't know a better way to put it. So, you know, if you, if you want to do the work, I assure you that the AUA wants your help, right? But the reality of it is, is that I really, if there's one thing I've learned in doing this over the years, and I, I think you guys will probably agree with me, at least to some degree, is that, you know, it all starts locally. It's a grassroots sort of thing. So getting involved in the section is really important. Understanding what's going on in your city and your town and your office and knowing the players locally, uh, you'll be more effective, number one. But number two, you'll bring a unique set of knowledge to the bigger table. I have no idea what happens in, in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. I'm picking that off the top of my head. But uh, I have friends uh, who practice out in Coeur d'Alene, as do you, Eugene. Uh, and, and those folks, you know, they can tell us what's going on and we can learn from them. So I really think it's all about starting local and, and, and bringing that bit of local knowledge to the bigger table. You're really invaluable. But I'll add what you, I'll add to what you said, Chris. I mean, yeah, just reach out. It's a friendly group of folks. And believe me, we're desperate for help. So if you want to help, we'll, we'll take it, right?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, in close, I mean, we have more than 300 volunteer physicians that are, have been dedicated. But um, new faces, new fresh new outlooks, uh, starting local. Um, great advice. Uh, we have councils committees that represent all eight AUA sections, speaking of local. Um, be involved. Uh, everything from young urologist committee to uh, you know uh, women in urology to uh, you know, academic urology, um, these, are, these are opportunities that are very specific to people to be involved. And frankly, the summit that is coming up, I remind folks, uh, the listeners, uh, please register. It's free. And it's a unique way, uh, very much like AUA Live, very uh, very engaging. We've made it that way through online uh, abilities uh, with 15 specialty societies. So it's a it's a great way to get a taste of what the summit is without having to really spend some time off your practice. As far as that's concerned, please learn more at www.auanet.org/backslash/advocacy. Easy to remember: auanet.org/backslash/advocacy. And so with that, I'd like to thank Dr. Dave Penson, Dr. Chris Gonzalez, Kathy uh, Shanley, and uh, Wendy Islett for arranging this as, uh, as a podcast that I hope you will find valuable. Thank you again. Thank you for listening to the AUA Inside Tracked podcast, an official podcast of the American Urological Association.
1: For more information, please visit auanet.org.